This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for late February, early March 2018. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and he's also now a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, As always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, good to be with you as always. We also have bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion, or an interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, also wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by mailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That time effect is spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. This week, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be looking at the recent manifesto released by Cardinal Gerhard Müller. We're going to be looking at the INF Treaty, and we're going to be discussing blackface and all of the things that go with it. So please do stay with us. Dan, how are you? David, I'm doing well. Time is flying by. It's hard to believe. In terms of our academic semester, we're almost halfway through. Yeah. It's, it's midterm time. Wow. And yeah, so other than that, you know, class is going well. It's good to... Uh, be, you know, teaching and, and to be in Chicago and things are generally good. Well, you said to be in Chicago, but I just want to note that you haven't <laughs> been in Chicago in the last couple of weeks. Where no, all have you been? No, no. Well, that's a good question. I can only remember within the last week. <laughs> a short-term memory. Yeah, so recently I was in California for a board of trustees meeting for a, a school that I serve on the board for out there. Also had the opportunity to kind of tag on in addition to being out there for a few days for this meeting to stop by the novitiate for the Franciscan Friars of the United States. And so got to spend a meal and, and a little bit of time, the mass on Saturday morning with the, the baby friars, we might say. You know, they're many of whom are actually older than me, but they're they're new to religious life. And so it was great to see them and great to uh to visit, you know, in, in a fraternal way and also to be reconnected with the guys who are in the generation 
we might say, after me. Now, these Franciscans of your order or of a, a, a different order? So these were Franciscans of my order. So this is the OFM. Um, you know, there are seven provinces at present in the U.S., and they all send their guys to uh, Santa Barbara, California, to Mission Santa Barbara. But as it happens, the other two main branches of the first order, the Franciscans, uh, the Capuchin Franciscans and the Conventual Franciscans, also have their novitiates on the West Coast. So they're all within about an hour, hour and a half of, of each other. So they do collaborate and, and have events. But this was just a very, very quick visit, kind of uh, while I was out there, let me stop in and, and say hi and, and spend a little time getting to know them. Excellent. Well, I, I've been doing well. I'm trying to finish now the revisions and edits for my book, The Accessorized Bible. And it's going well, but, you know, as you know, when you have a book project, I think it was Orson Welles or maybe Picasso, I can't remember which, but said projects are never finished, they're simply abandoned. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out the optimal time to abandon this and send it back to the editor. But it's, you know, I'm very pleased with how it's coming together. Like you, I'm teaching this semester and it's going well. I've got a great class this semester teaching New Testament and the conversations during the classes are kind of on fire. And I'm also aware that the students are getting together outside of class and reading the Bible together, and I couldn't be happier about that. And so anytime that that is happening, anytime that the word is being read and proclaimed, I'm a very happy man. <laughs> <laughs> You're living up to your baptismal vocation. You exactly. Know? It's yeah. the new evangelization it's, right here, baby, <laughs> in the coffee shops, in the in the tenement halls. Um, well, you know, it's interesting that the young adults, you know, we've talked a lot on this program about the synod back in the fall, and, and they have this very interesting line where they, they tell the, their bishops, their, their brother Christians who are in in leadership of the church, they say, you know, we think one of the privileged places for you to meet us is on the streets where we are. And so, hey, coffee shops, podcasts, yeah. classrooms, and that's where we go. That's exactly it. Well, we've, we've got a good show today, and we're going to jump right into it. So when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about Cardinal Gerhard Müller and the letter that he wrote. This is The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together and talk about topics and issues viewed through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. So, Dan, I'm aware that back in November, late November, Cardinal Gerhard Müller, and let me just acknowledge we both know how to say <laughs> Müller, but for the rest of the conversation, we're probably going to say Mueller, just because we're Americans. Cardinal Müller in Germany wrote a, a letter where he basically said that it's not legit to try and undermine the Pope. It's not legit to call for the Pope's resignation. It's not legit to try and publicly correct the Pope. So he wrote that. And then, just recently, in the last couple of weeks, he released a manifesto, I guess we could call it, a four-page document that looks at various topics that are current in the news, everything from same-sex marriage to divorced Catholics who are remarried, getting communion, et cetera, et cetera, all the hot-button issues. He kind of reads it through the catechism, 
and he never names the Pope, but it's pretty clear from all the commentary that he's going after the Pope. So first of all, just kind of what's going on here and what am I missing? Because he didn't, he doesn't want to undermine the Pope and then he releases this. What's going on? Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you summarized that pretty well. Um, Cardinal Mueller was the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, which is the doctrinal kind of enforcement agency. Uh, listeners who don't know this, we used to call that same office the Inquisition. That's correct. Back in the day. Yeah, before Vatican II. Um, that's, that was really the, the Holy Inquisition, among other titles. So on the one hand, his former job, he's retired now. He is no longer in that position. He was responsible for overseeing clarification of doctrine and these sorts of things and so forth. You're right to also say that this document, so he does call it a manifesto. This is his own title for it. He calls it a manifesto of faith. It's a very brief document. And he opens by saying that, quote, in the face of growing confusion about the doctrine of the faith, many bishops, priests, religious, and lay people of the Catholic Church have requested that I make a public testimony about the truth of revelation, end quote. And so he presents this as if people were asking him to talk about this, which may or may not be true. I think it's probably more a rhetorical device than it is, you know, an admission that there's this clamoring for this retired prefect of the CDF to say something. What I find striking about this, he organizes it into five kind of key themes. And and actually, I push back a little bit in the summary where you say, like, you know, he's addressing current events and this sort of thing. He kind of is, oftentimes you know, sort of obliquely, um, you you said something exactly right, David, which is that the primary referent he makes here is to the catechism of the Catholic Church. So that's my first issue with this this document. Take, take it back. It's my second issue. Well, you've often said, as whenever I quote the catechism or reference the catechism, you note that this is, the catechism is a teaching document. It's not like an official, we can't right. use that as a way of kind of correcting people. And That's exactly right. And people will say, well, what are you talking about? And I say, well, I'm talking about what John Paul II says in the document that promulgates the publishing of Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I, it sounds awkward for me not to use an article like the or a catechism. Actually, a would be more appropriate than the, because as the late Holy Father, now St. John Paul II says, that this is, is to serve basically as a template for regional enculturated catechisms around the world. That's the responsibility of bishops' conferences in different continents, different countries, to articulate the faith following this general structure. And so that the catechism, as if it were a definitive end-of-the-line kind of conversation-stopping document, is disingenuous. That's not what it is. Oh, I, I just thought of something. So this is a mirror, or it's an analog to the traditional mass, quote-unquote, versus Novus Ordo mass, the notion that somehow there is one there's one master and we all have to be slaves to that one master versus there's a, a model and we all improvise and create around that model using that model as a standard, that's really the argument of that's at the heart of the mass, isn't it? Yeah, that's, I see the parallel that you're drawing, and I think there's something to that. And it seems that Cardinal Mueller in this case is falling into this camp that understands theology as primarily propositional and understands revelation as primarily propositional, that it is static, it's unchanging, it's absolutely clear, it's something that can be articulated in written form or in um, bullet points or in paragraphs within a document called Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the truth is theology and doctrine, doctrine as it's articulated with the exercise of magisterium, 
meaning teaching authority of the church, develops over time. It's complicated. It's not something that's handed down from above. That's true, as Dave Erebum points out from Vatican II, it's true with Scripture too, right? Scripture is not, from a Catholic perspective, a set of propositional claims. God did not dictate to the human authors of the, the Bible, line by line, what is supposed to appear in there. That's just not what we believe as Catholic Christians. Therefore, a kind of strict fundamentalist or literalist reading of scripture and of theology is not tenable. So I find it actually a little disappointing because, you know, Cardinal Mueller is a professional theologian. At this point, and it's important to make clear, he is a private theologian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is not occupying a teaching office of the church. He is a cardinal. He is a bishop, but he's a titular bishop, which means he does not have any real, and I'm, I'm using this very advisedly, real pastoral responsibility or jurisdiction over any person. If I can clarify that, so not only is the Catholic Church a church, it's also a massive bureaucracy. And so oftentimes bishops will appoint bishops who help to do administrative tasks, to, who help to oversee those sorts of things. And so in that sense, we have bishops that don't have congregations and don't oversee yeah. persons. But you're making the point that he's not even that. He, no, 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 no. Well, no, he is. Let, okay. let, let me qualify. Yeah, so clarify. Let, me, let me make sure that I'm following. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, But I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much. It's too tempting because it's too fascinating. What's at tension here is what you're naming. There are real pastoral needs. So like the Church of Chicago, what we call in the modern language a diocese. Anciently, we'd call it the Church of Chicago, the Church of Milwaukee, the Church of Scranton, has one bishop, and there could only be one bishop in a church because communion is signified, the unity of the Christian faithful through the sacraments, through the profession of faith, through the teaching, is signified by the one bishop who is in communion with all the other bishops of the church in its head, right? The first among equals is the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, which is why in the Eucharistic prayer, we pray for you know, Blaze, our local bishop, Francis, the Bishop of Rome, and so forth. But it's such a huge church. It's such a huge diocese with so many Catholic Christians that the one bishop can't possibly minister to all of them. And therefore, he needs assistance. And that's where the term auxiliary bishop comes from. The problem is they are ordained bishops, but the theology of the church makes clear that bishops have to have a church. There are no floating bishops. There are no rogue bishops. You have to be tied to an actual church, an actual diocese. And the weird kind of jujitsu backflipping that the Catholic Church does for a really good reason, right? The good reason is we need people to help Cardinal Supich in, in a big church or another diocese, is that these bishops are ordained to what are called titular churches. They are churches or dioceses in title only. They are either dioceses that were suppressed or they were dioceses that once existed in parts of the world that have been restructured or rearranged, or, you know, there are a lot of reasons, but a diocese, once a church is erected, it never goes away. And so it just kind of is suspended in this kind of limbo of nominal existence. So to, to put it very frankly, auxiliary bishops in a diocese, to use them as an example, are bishops of a diocese that have no people in them. By definition, there are zero people there. So to your point about bureaucracy, there are other bishops, nuncios, who are really ambassadors, right? So there's an archbishop in Washington who is the Holy Father's ambassador to the United States. He is not the bishop of Washington, right, or New York or anything else. He is the bishop of a diocese that is real, quote unquote, but has no people in it. And so he is freed up then 
to serve in this other capacity. Now, are these what we would call vicariate bishops, or is that a different thing? That's a different thing. Okay, so we won't go down that no. rabbit hole. A fascinating no. question, but we won't go down today. Yeah. So back to this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So why, why does that matter? It, it, it matters only tangentially. <laughs> we spend a lot of time, and people now know, you know, look up, by the way, on Wikipedia has a whole list of the titular sees. So you can see, you know, which auxiliary bishop is the bishop of Atlantis and these other places and so forth. But back to this, why that's important is that in order for a bishop to exercise his ordinary magisterium, which is the, the primary teaching function of his office, not of his ordination, right, of his office, one ha- is, can, like Cardinal Supich can in the Diocese of Chicago, issue teachings, pastoral instruction and so forth for the people here, people in this diocese. Cardinal Mueller does not have a diocese. So that's, that's just a tangential thing because I, I raise this question about purpose. What is the purpose of this manifesto? You know, he says up front that there are people who are asking him to comment on this. And now let's just take him at his word. If that's true, then he's free and most welcome to comment on this. No differently than Dr. David Dalt and Reverend Dr. Daniel Haran. We are both professional theologians like Cardinal Mueller. And, and so the three of us can comment on the catechism or comment on theology, but we all do so as private theologians. So that's important to keep in mind. Because somebody happens to be an archbishop or a cardinal, if they're not exercising a, you know, a teaching function of an office that they hold, and at this point Cardinal Mueller does not hold an office, one has to keep that in mind. So what is the weight of this? Well, the weight is Cardinal Mueller is, is a professional theologian, has some insight, has something to offer, and you can take it or leave it. Now, this goes to the next thing, which is something we talked about a moment ago, which is the catechism here. That he relies on this instead of engaging in the magisterial teaching of the church, by which I mean, as I like to tell my students, the catechism is basically an annotated table of contents to the faith. You want to know where the teaching really is, what's authoritative, look at the footnotes. What are the ecumenical council documents? What are the encyclical promulgations and so forth? He doesn't do that. He basically references a catechetical tool to justify a few arguments. The biggest one I have to say here is his hang-up about who should be admitted or could be admitted to Holy Communion. Well, so I want to ask a question, and again, I don't want to get us down a rabbit hole, but there was a document promulgated by a schismatic bishop, Archbishop Lefebvre, Marcel Lefebvre, called An Open Letter to Confused Catholics when he was heading up the Society of St. Pius X. And he was writing, basically saying, I am going to correct the errors that I see being promulgated by the modernist church in the wake of Vatican II. All right. And so, again, the idea is that there's a real church that somehow this bishop has access to and can see clearly, and the rest of the church has fallen away, and so this bishop is going to issue a public corrective. What's different from what Marcel Lefebvre did as a schismatic bishop and what... Cardinal Gerhard Müller is doing? Well, the one striking thing is that Lefebvre was was not in communion with the church, clearly. He was, the technical definition is excommunicated. Um, that's something one does to themselves, and it's confirmed by either the Holy See or by a local bishop. But one excommunicates themselves by stepping outside of communion. It's interesting you should mention him and in this case because Cardinal Walter Casper, also an an eminent theologian who, not unlike Mueller, before he was a a curial official, he headed up the office in Rome for the Vatican for interreligious and ecumenical dialogue. But like Mueller, he was a professional theologian who taught at universities in Germany for a long time. He was asked about Mueller's uh, 
you know, manifesto of faith, as it were. And according to one report, and I'll just read this, Cardinal Casper suggested that Mueller was following the path of Martin Luther, quote, one who rightly advocates reforms in the church but wants to pursue these behind the Pope's back and enforce them in opposition to him, I would find that hard to believe. That could only lead to confusion and division. That could unhinge the Catholic Church, end quote. So here's another eminent theologian, um, again, retired from Episcopal, holding an Episcopal office, though he's still obviously an ordained bishop in, in communion with the church. But not speaking from the magisterium. Right. He's yeah. not exercising magisterium, and that's an important distinction. Neither of these guys are. They're, in effect, private theologians, but well-known and important ones. Cardinal Casper is saying exactly, I think, what you were insinuating with the question, which is what makes the difference. Well, for now, these critics like, you know, Vigano and Burke and Mueller are folks who are still in communion with Rome. But Casper is raising the same question you are when he was interviewed about this. It's very touchy, you know. It does seem to lay the possibility of, of schism where certain bishops think they know better. And it's not just certain bishops. These are bishops who, again, aren't exercising the Episcopal office right now. And so they're kind of in a, in a medium place, I would say, between a bishop who is serving as bishop as, as a ordinary in a diocese who is raising kind of these schismatic questions that that's really precarious but they're not quite lefevre or, or luther or something in the sense you know they're still in communion so uh, i don't want to go to speculate you know go in the direction of speculating whether or not these sorts of things begin to step outside of communion you know and casper also says in this interview that what mueller's raising is basically 50% perfectly fine, and then using that kind of perfectly ordinary teaching of the church to justify his own claims. And that, Casper says that those claims that Mueller's advocating, like divorced people can never receive communion, or that women can never be admitted to holy orders, um, and, and a few other kind of points that he highlights, Casper says that undermines his references to things that all good Catholics can wholeheartedly agree on. Nevertheless, I don't think there's anything here. Um, this goes back to my question about what is the purpose of this? I, I, I don't – there is no clarification here. He's basically clumping together excerpts from the catechism, which is not from a theological vantage point a very strong argument or a useful thing to do. So I don't know what your take is in reading this, you know. Well, so when I first read it, I read it cursorily. And I thought, what's the big deal? Yeah, right, right. Uh, for reasons that you just said, it, it's like it's recapitulating certain parts of the catechism, and it's basically saying, this is what we believe. I don't think any reasonable Catholic would have any kind of argument against any of the things that were there, because if you're in full communion with the Church, you're, you're going to be in line with what the catechism says. And so I started to read it again and read the commentaries on it with an eye not towards what we might call the plain sense of the document, but, but the, the census plenior. Yeah, the the the, 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 re the rhetorical yeah. positioning of the document. What got left out? What was conspicuously absent? And some of the things that are conspicuously absent are a robust notion of the centrality of the papacy, uh, and and a notion of well. I, let me take a step back and say. I have a difficulty as a person who convinced myself out of Protestantism when Catholics begin to argue for an invisible church or some church that floats above us that is the norm for the church that we are supposed to be living in. I believe in the dirty church. I believe in the church that is physically here being the church that Christ envisioned and wants. 
and I've got a I've got an entire kind of theological mumbo jumbo to go with that. But basically, by my lights, if you're imagining a better church and you think that's the church that you live in, you're a Protestant. And that's a difficulty for me. The irony, if I can just jump in by way of historical nerdism, yeah. the irony is that actually one of the things Luther gets really right is this notion of simul justus uh, et peccator, mm-hmm. that, that the church is simultaneously justified or holy and sinful. And so the irony is that if there's a view that people have that there's some ideal perfect church and that they're part of it, well, actually that is – ironically less Protestant by Luther's standards, right? It is something like a a radically reformed view. And so I don't mean to nitpick, but it's just so funny because I agree with you that that is not the Church of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The Church of Jesus Christ is one where betrayers and liars and tax collectors and sinners are the ones welcome to the table. From the beginning. From the very beginning. And welcomed with full acknowledgement of who they are. I mean, if we think about Judas Iscariot, he's acknowledged at the table. The others don't realize what Jesus is saying, but Jesus knows if we're to trust the text. And so that being said, you know, a document like this is, I think, in and of itself, it's four pages and really not even that. It's largely not arguwithable in terms of what's on the face of it. What's disturbing to me is how it is being now used to make hay in certain wings of the Catholic press. Yeah. And so it's being now, it doesn't say that it's a corrective. And again, that goes back to that November 28th comment from Mueller, where he says, it's not our job to correct the Pope or call the Pope to resign. But there are those that are now using this as the fulcrum point to do exactly that. I think it's worth, if I can just add two things, you know, to follow up on what you were just saying. It's, it's certain Catholic media is a good way to put it because it was published by a pseudo-wire service that is run by the EWTN Corporation. It's called Catholic News Agency, not to be confused with Catholic News Service, which is an authentic wire service. It's also tied to the National Catholic Register, uh, a very conservative uh, newspaper. And so it's not – this is not something that's actually gaining much traction in the broader, more kind of reputable Catholic media landscape. The other thing I will say too is that I really appreciate the way you're pointing out the way that this otherwise at at surface glance indisputably kind of clear presentation of, oh, here are some things about the church teaching. But there are some really simple mistakes that a first-year master's student in either one of our classes would never be allowed to get away with. And and this coming from somebody who, who knows better is really striking. So for instance, when talking about how communion should not be, you know, those should not be admitted to communion who are, you know, in what's oftentimes called grave sin, quote unquote, he cites a passage from the first letter to the Corinthians, a passage that often gets brought up by people who want to deny communion to others. And so this is, this is how it's read in his manifesto. He says, therefore, the Holy Scripture admonishes with regard to the reception of the Holy Communion, quote, whoever eats unworthily of the bread and drinks from the Lord's cup makes himself guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord, end quote, from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Now, the thing about that is historical critical analysis makes very clear. Actually, just reading that whole chapter 11 makes clear what Paul is talking about is not about personal sin. It's not about – it cannot be applied to, for instance, people who are divorced and civilly remarried. That's not what this is about. What is it about? Paul is chastising the whole community, the Christian community in Corinth because of the way that they at once in the early days 
we're tending to the needs of the poor and the, the widows and the orphans and recognize that that service to others, that caring for the least in their community, the most precarious, was tied to the Lord's Supper, was tied to that Eucharistic celebration, that banquet. And what had happened was that over time, those who were Christians and more wealthy would take care of themselves alone and not help, for instance, by providing you know, ordinary meals or you know, think of it as like a potluck for those who could not afford to participate and then you know, would nevertheless go to celebrate the Lord's Supper with everybody. And what Paul is getting at here is, is not, again, about personal sin. It's about the structural injustice of the wealthy not caring for the rest of the community. That's what St. Augustine will say three centuries later. When he says that when you say amen to the body of Christ, you're saying amen to the brother and sister next to you because we are also the body of Christ. Well, and what's interesting is that he quotes Corinthians there, and he doesn't quote Canon 915 and Canon 916. And I think that there's a reason why. Canon 915, just briefly, is stipulates the ways in which a cleric may exclude someone from communion, and Canon 916 stipulates the way out of conscience a person may exclude themselves or should exclude themselves from communion. These are historically incredibly hard to enforce, and they're historically incredibly murky in terms of their application. And so it's even though there are those on to our right who want to trot out 915 and 916 as if they're magic bullets, historically they're incredibly hard to enforce and even to, to invoke. I'm not a canon lawyer, but I've read enough about these yeah. two to know that that's the case. And so it's interesting to me that he's going back to a scriptural source, not a canonical source on this. And I think that that speaks to the larger weakness in the document, that he's not really, he's not really able to maneuver by way of canon law. He's maneuvering by way of rhetoric. Well, the funny thing, too, is that you know, if, if what you're saying is that he's trying to at least appear to rest his argument on a, on a surer foundation by claiming scripture, th- that's problematic because the scripture scholars will say, any New Testament scholar will say, that is not what this means. You, you are, it's eisegesis, not exegesis here. You're projecting into it the meaning you desire, which is the same thing with Canon 915. This is something I've written about. It's something that I've read a lot about. And I, too, am not a canon lawyer, but I play one on TV. And the important thing to realize is that's a deeply contentious canon in the code and that it really is sort of a, a Rorschach test for the various interpreters. Some of the, the leading canon lawyers, those like John Beale at the Catholic University of America, James Corden, who used to teach at Washington Theological Union, former dean of the School of Canon Law at CUA, will say that actually 915 never says, and they're right about this, never says you have to withhold communion from anybody. That's an important distinction. Meanwhile, there are others, and I'm not going to mention their names, but one of them teaches at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit, very uh, uh, vocal person on this front, will say that there's actually an imperative to withhold communion if you suspect somebody of grave sin. The, the problem with that is you don't know. Only God knows. I, I often bring this up. I'm like, somebody's walking up to your communion aisle, you know, and you, you might have seen in the Sunday morning paper that they have done some terrible thing or have been convicted of some sort of crime. If they're convicted, I don't know why they're walking in communion, but, but, but nevertheless, you don't know that they didn't just go to the sacrament of reconciliation, that they didn't just go to confession. You don't know anything. It is not our place to deny anybody communion. That's I stand with the leading canonists on this. As for those who disagree, you know, 
we'll continue to have this conversation. Yeah, for those that are interested in going down the rabbit hole on this, uh, start by Googling the Donatist controversy and, <laughs> and kind of look at how the church has adjudicated hospitality towards the sacraments for literally the last 1,700 years. I was just going to say, you are setting these poor people up for, <laughs> you know, basically 14 years of research. But for, for right now, uh, the, I'm sure that we'll come back to this because I'm sure that this won't go away, unfortunately. But let's let's leave this here for now, and uh, we'll come back after a break. This is the Francis. Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is David uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss politics, current events, culture from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We're switching gears now to take a look at some really potentially disturbing news that's being reported. And this involves the INF Treaty. That's the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty ratified in 1988, really near the end of the Cold War. And in effect, what this said was that missiles that could carry nuclear warheads that could be launched from the ground, these mobile kind of launching devices that had this kind of medium range. Actually, why don't I just turn it over to you, David? Give us a summary quick. Sure. So our listeners may or may not know that we developed a lot of different types of nuclear weapons over the past 70 years from the time that we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We have invented bombs that can be carried on basically rocket ships that can be launched from our continent and can fly through the stratosphere to another continent. Those are known as intercontinental ballistic missiles. ICBMs. ICBMs. We have also developed what we basically could call backpack or satchel nuclear weapon or strategic atomic demolition devices that literally two people could carry, one carrying it on the back and another carrying some equipment. It could be put someplace basically like a satchel charge and it could be used with a a small dispersal nuclear blast. So those are kind of point delivery by a person. In between those two, there are exactly what you said. There are these mobile missiles that can be driven around literally on the backs of trucks or on trains, and they can be fired. These are missiles that put the European theater into play. When we're talking about Russia in particular. We're talking particularly, this is a Cold War mindset where the enemy is Russia, and how will we deliver armaments to attack Russia? And so we have armaments that will fly on rocket ships through the stratosphere. We have armaments that can be parachuted in and dropped by individuals. But we also have armaments that can be moved around on roads in Europe and fired into Russia. And also Russia, I mean, so these are weapons that by definition are smaller yield and they are what we call not strategic but tactical. So they are being used as battle tactics as part of land warfare or air warfare. And so they change the calculus of how we think about conflict. They change the mindset 
of what's going on. And so in this conversation, I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit about mutual assured destruction. We'll talk about the kind of Cold War mindset that went into this. But for right now, what you need to know is that everybody understood in the 1980s that these tipped the balance and they changed the way that we thought about warfare and made it more possible that we would get into conflict using nuclear arms, not less. And so they were rightfully eliminated. But now as of February 1st, they are back on the game board. Well, and it seems to me, as I understand it, right, Vladimir Putin has been signaling for the last at least decade or so that he wants to reinstate this or maybe has covertly been restating this, uh, reinstating this uh, in Russia in terms of building these types of bombs and missiles. And now, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, because once, you know, because the agreement, the treaties between the United States and Russia or former USSR, you know, once one party is no longer cooperating, then there's no treaty. And so within six months, we then are faced with this dilemma. Do we start stockpiling these kinds of weapons again? Is that right? Yes, although there's a little bit more complexity there, at least from our end. And let me get into that. So plutonium, which is the primary component that is used to make these things explode, is a very tricky substance to handle. And historic, I recommend not handling it. Yeah, most people, <laughs> most people should not handle it. Yeah. Up until the early 1990s, the plutonium was mainly handled and machined in a place called Rocky Flats in Colorado. And if you want to Google Rocky Flats, you'll find out that it was pretty famously shut down for environmental infractions. And so since that time, since Rocky Flats has been shut down, we haven't had a place that could fashion plutonium into these types of weapons. We tried to do it at Los Alamos. A production line got up and running and almost immediately was shut down again because they had so much trouble environmentally handling this material. So we don't actually have a functional production line to create new weapons. So from our end, what we're talking about is reconfiguring weapons that exist to become intermediate-range weapons. That's a tricky thing because it means that we are we're taking things that were designed to create massive destruction. We're re-engineering them slightly to create minor destruction. And we're treating them as if they're new weapons. So from our end, we don't have the production capacity right now. And we are not ready to start the production capacity to make new weapons that are intermediate range weapons. It's not entirely clear if Russia is tooled up to do this. Because Russia, in the wake of Chernobyl and others, also began to shut down its production facilities. Right. I guess in the wake of this treaty, both countries combined reduced their, their stockpile by 90%. So yeah. it was successful on one level. Okay, so that's, that's good background. So what does this mean? I mean, what, what does it mean morally? What does it mean practically? Is this something that those here in North America need to be concerned about? Certainly, it sounds like something if you're, you're if you are Ukrainian, if you are German, if you are Polish, this is very terrifying. Yeah. And so the first thing is we need to understand what it means technically and rhetorically. Technically, America is not ready to create new weapons. We're just not. We're probably a good five years from being able to tool up to make new weapons. And, and that's that's. That's any that's any weapon. Oh no no, but I mean, but that's that's irrespective of whether we ought to or not. Right. We just are not prepared right. to right now. And so technologically, there are impediments to doing that quickly. That's why the rhetoric of this is so important to pay attention to, because what this means in terms of posturing, what it means in terms of the pieces on the table, 
that's what's really changing right now. And exactly what you said, it's not just Britain and Germany that are in play now. Ukraine is in play. And I think part of the reason why Putin is doing this is because of the Ukrainian question and the annexing of the Crimea. Those sorts of posturings and those sorts of land grabs become much more provocative towards minimal nuclear conflict or small nuclear conflict if these weapons are at even theoretically in play. It allows for a different type of posturing. It allows for a different type of threat, a threat that never should be made morally. That's the kind of bright line that we should be thinking about in terms of our American posture, is that we stepped back from this brink because we recognize the moral imperative that these kinds of weapons brought. And for 30 years, we've lived without the threat of that moral imperative. We're reintroducing that. That will not help us. Yeah, you bring up the moral imperative. I think this is really important, too. I mean, from a Catholic perspective, there is this tradition. You know, in the last segment, we were talking about the, about the Catechism of the Catholic Church. One thing that is included there by summary is this tradition called just war theory. And it's it's been longstanding, 1,700 years and counting. Basically, begins with Augustine and has continued through this day. And for about 16 of the last 1,700 years, cases could be made where one might imagine a war uh, or violent conflict that fits the various standards that could grant justification for, though it's always regrettable, pursuing violent force. Although we have to say there is no metric by which a nuclear weapon could ever fit into just and that's And that's exactly where I'm going with this, that you know, a, a number of moral theologians have pointed out that it, ever since Hiroshima, it's it's off the table. That technology is such that, and, and we don't have to get into all the details about proportionality, about a war of defense, um, about, uh, you know, you can never be preemptive, about casualties, uh, you know. I've also I've I've heard some theorists, including you know the, the American Trappist Thomas Merton, wrote quite a bit about peace and nonviolence and war during the Vietnam conflict, and he pointed out that some theologians and and I think he's got a point here. Ever since the Renaissance, with the invention of the crossbow, that the force of that weapon actually started to put into jeopardy the possibility of a just war, I mean, mostly from the viewpoint of proportionality. That no longer is there just a purely defensive kind of all sides even in in. Solving a conflict um, by last resort using violence. But now things have gotten out of control. And, and you hit the nail on the head in an atomic era, you know, there's no ju just war is off the table. And, and frankly, even before that, one of the things Merton also says during the Vietnam conflict is when you look at napalm and you look at these firebombs and, and the kind of force that – or if you look at what, what happened in World War II in the European front where it's the bombing of Dresden or you look at the London bombings, these are conventional, quote-unquote, conventional weapons that, that create massive, massive destruction – that cannot be justified, even if you the, the ends do not justify the means. Even if you're seeking a kind of peace, or or it, you're fighting, you know, arises out of a place of defense, like we might say with the Allies in Europe, it can't be justified. So, what does this new, you know, treaty dissolution put on the table in terms of Catholic teaching from the U.S. perspective? Well, so let's talk about this in terms of just the the yield of the weapons. One of the things that also made news parallel to the dissolution of the INF Treaty was several news outlets began to report that we were creating a new weapon, and that was actually a misrepresentation of what was going on. We have a weapon in our arsenal called the W-76, which is a warhead which is delivered from a Trident missile, which is a submarine-launched missile, an SCBM for those that want to Google that. And it has a yield of around 20 kilotons. 
okay? And it has what we call dial-a-yield, which means that it's a boosted weapon so you can use a gas called tritium to change the amount of destructive power that it has from 20 to about 100 kilotons, depending. And so that's, you know, that's roughly, that's more than Hiroshima to about five times the amount of Hiroshima. What is going on right now is, again, since we can't create new weapons, we're reconfiguring old weapons. The W-76, some of those are being brought offline. They're being sent to a place in Texas called Pantex, where they're being taken apart and reconfigured now to have a different yield, a yield of about five kilotons, which is about a third of what leveled Hiroshima. Okay, so that in one sense is better because it's less destructive than Hiroshima. That was air quotes, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm air quoting better. But so think about then what that means. So 5,000 tons of TNT being exploded in a point source at millions of degrees still will create a firestorm, still will create fallout effects, still will create damage both to property and to life that is far beyond the initial blast zone of the weapon. And so we're talking about weapons that can never, never by definition be limited to only tactical damage. They always will create what's called euphemistically collateral damage, which means the death of civilians. The death of civilians takes just war off the table. There's no possibility of having just war if you're not protecting civilian life in the process of prosecuting the war. And I'm not a moral theologian, but I can tell you that at least that much I understand about how just war operates. And so by definition, even though these are more limited in scope in terms of their destructive force, they still are catastrophic. They still will cause collateral damage. They still will cause the kind of terror in the mind that will lead to increased insecurity, not even if they're not used. Just the threat of them is enough to make people feel unbalanced. I grew up in the 1980s, and I remember not being able to fall asleep at night because I was afraid of what would happen. I was afraid of the madmen that were literally at the helm of our states, both Russia and America. I mean, if you want a microcosm of this, go listen to Sting's The Russians. I mean, it's basically, that's the mindset. It's a, it's a mindset of nightmares, and it's a mindset of insomnia. It's, it is terrifying to think about. You know, you said something, too. It's got me thinking back to World War II. And, and just to, to illustrate this, too, folks may be confused or, or just hearing this for the first time, that World War II, from a Catholic theological perspective, perspective of the church teaching, is not a just war, at least from our vantage point because of what we did in Japan. And it could be argued, as I mentioned earlier, with conventional warfare, too. There are some things that check the list in terms of metrics that work toward justifying the war, such as a war of defense, right? But once you drop an atomic bomb, the game is over. Well, even before we dropped the atomic bomb, there was the firebombing of Dresden exactly. and the firebombing of Tokyo, both of which caused, again, not to go down a rabbit hole and I and uh, you know trigger warning, but if you Google either of those, the, oh, it's yeah, yeah, the 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 ways that people died as a result of those prosecutions of attack are horrendous and almost unthinkable and on a par with the deaths in Hiroshima and also on a par with the deaths in the gas chambers. It was a horrible way for people to die. So, so what do you say? So we, I mean, it's pretty clear. The Catholic teaching is pretty clear on this, you know, that it's not justifiable. Um, we should not be, we should not have these weapons of any range <laughs> of this, this kind of magnitude. So what is your response then? You know, I know you have, a, you've given a lot of thought to this and you, you follow this stuff pretty closely. What is your response to those who say, well, well, we have to ratchet up as the current president has has said, we have to ratchet up the production of our military forces and of our weapons because we can't let the Russians do this and leave us kind of in the lurch. How do you respond to that kind of logic? Well, I think 
what the 1980s showed us is how much diplomacy can accomplish if we actually had a functioning diplomatic corps. That raises another really important point about the current administration. Well, and, And so I think that the current administration has been very tactical in removing that as an option. So now, in the absence of a functional diplomatic corps, yes, increased military spending is the rational choice because we have moved the option for actually doing the more rational thing off the table. That's not a natural preclusion. That is an engineered preclusion. And so the question is not, don't we have to do this if Russia is doing this? Well, we have another option on the table that we could and should be exercising, and it it does not involve trying to retool Rocky Flats or Los Alamos to become weapons production plants again. It involves instead sitting down at a table and doing the work of diplomacy. Which seems to me, you know, it fits very closely with what Pope Francis has been teaching in terms of dialogue, you know, that, you know, we do not jump to violence as our first resort. It should always be a last resort, which is part and parcel of Catholic teaching on violence and use of violent force. But this notion of dialogue is really important, and it doesn't get any of the attention that it deserves. And I think you're raising a really key point about the kind of deconstruction of the State Department beginning under Rex Tillerson. But I also think we need to be concerned about those who are the security advisors like John Bolton and other, I guess you would call them hawkish, maybe that's a compliment, um, but but hawkish on war and conflict. Well, let me just speak to this. So anyone who is a rational diplomat would look at the destabilization of the European Union right now that's happening around Brexit and happening around the Italy and Greek questions and the economic turmoil that's been going on. The European Union is not just an economic union. It's a political union designed to stop world wars. And it has for 70 years. And it has for 70 years. But right now that's in flux. All right. The last thing that any rational actor would want to do while that is in flux is introduce intermediate range nuclear force weapons. That j- Why in the world would you want to take a roaring fire on your stove and throw more oil on it? What possible- well, Because some people are like Nero. Yeah. I mean, Vladimir Putin, quite frankly, I, I think he's interested in one thing only, which is his own power and aggrandizement. I mean, he does have – it's no secret, as, as a former KGB officer, has a real nostalgic sense of the greatness that never was and wants to get back to a point where they can reinstate that. Um, there's an axe to be ground and – it's deeply disturbing. I mean, the, the, you know, you're talking about the European Union and its its potential uh, destabilization. We see it obviously with Brexit. We know now that a lot of the Brexit vote and the lead up to that was funded by, or at least there was involvement on the part of Russian operatives, not unlike what was going on in the 2016 election here in the United States. We see the same thing took place in France, um, particularly in support for Marine Le Pen. We see the same thing as well in German propaganda, particularly against Chancellor Angela Merkel. Also in the Netherlands. I mean, we can find yeah, a lot of places yeah. where this is happening. And and so it's, it's very disturbing. And there's also then the rhetoric, both the sheepishness, it would seem, with the current administration in the United States about Article 5 of the NATO agreement, but also these rumors that that are not something to be made light or to be made, you know, the butt of a joke where Trump and others have floated the idea or allowed the idea to circulate that maybe the U.S. would withdraw from NATO. That would be horrendous. Yeah. And so from a Catholic standpoint, you've raised the issue of just war. We also have to think about the ways in which a Catholic citizen can and should operate in this current moment. So you mentioned Putin. Putin's an autocrat. 
Okay, and so Putin and the government in Russia is doing what it is doing. The question is what we in a democracy can and should do. And in a democracy, we are not obligated to follow an autocrat, and we're not obligated to follow in reflex to what an autocrat of a foreign nation is doing. Again, we should govern ourselves, and the military answers to us as citizens. It is a citizen-run military. And so the notion that somehow a general or a commander-in-chief should say, well, we have to do this because we're being advised to do this because it's the best possible option, we have the option, we have the obligation to speak up about that. And I think the bishops do too. I just want to, you know, maybe as we're wrapping up this conversation, that's an excellent point, is to highlight or, or put a, you know, a dot there on the eye that what you're naming, David, is twofold. One is this is, though it seems like esoteria and international diplomacy and, and military strategy that most ordinary people are not concerned with, this is what we might call, again, a life issue. This is about the, the, the seamless garment, the consistent ethic of life, war and violence, our place within it, as well as you know the call that we have to hold our elected officials accountable and to, as Pope Francis says, exercise in a pragmatic way our values, which is, you know, go to the ballot box. And if these folks are not representing or are posing a kind of threat, they do not need to represent us anymore and we should elect somebody else. And so that's, I think that's part and parcel of what it means to be a fully active, involved Catholic Christian in the modern world. But I I just didn't want us to leave without mentioning that, again, people talk about pro-life and Catholics are pro-life. We are more than a one issue church. You know, we're not a party because there's no perfect Catholic political party. So let us keep that in mind. Uh, And with that, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks we get together to, to discuss issues framed by a lens of our shared Catholic faith. So there's been a lot in the news in the last couple of weeks about racial politics in Virginia, and that is extending not just from the governor, but now to the attorney general and the lieutenant governor. And so we're going to dig into that. But by way of doing that, I'm going to just give a little bit of personal history. So I grew up in the Deep South. I grew up in Columbus, Georgia and Phoenix City, Alabama. And I went to school in Phoenix City, Alabama, which is about 100 miles south of Atlanta. And when I was there in the 1980s, in my school in Alabama, we had a class every year called Alabama History. 
And as part of the Alabama history class, we put on a pageant one year for the entire school, which was looking at all the various heroes that had been there in Alabama. And this was a white flight school. It was a private school that had been designed to pull white students out of the public system when the public school system integrated. And so there were not African-Americans in my school and certainly not in my class. And so one of the famous people that we discussed in this pageant was W.C. Handy, the African-American trumpet player, the jazz musician. And I have a very strong memory of my classmate walking up to the microphone holding a trumpet in blackface. And so this was fifth grade, so these are 10-year-olds. But, you know, I want to say that in, in the early 1980s, 1981, 1982, this was not unheard of for public events that were mostly or completely all-white events to utilize blackface. I'm not saying that it was okay. I'm saying that adults looked at this and said, we don't have a black student to represent W.C. Handy, so it's just fine to paint the face of this white child to stand in for W.C. Handy, not thinking about the entire reason why a student that looked like W.C. Handy would not have been in that school in the first place. That is the background that we're talking about. It's not just a Southern thing. It's also a Northern thing. Nevertheless, it is a thing that is part of our culture at the edges, and it has to do with a lot of history that we can probably get into. But I just want to put out there that, you know, blackface is not a theoretical thing for me. I've witnessed it. I have been around it. And as a person raised in the South, it is not alien to my experience at all that this would be something that would happen. Yeah, it's disturbing on so many levels that this kind of overt racism, and again, the way you describe it, I think, is telling about the intentions of the parents, of the teachers, of, of the, the little kids and so forth. May not They may not have understood themselves to be malicious actors, but that itself raises questions yes. about a lack of self-criticality, a lack of awareness, a lack of historical significance. So so let's talk about – so thank you for sharing that. And it gives, you know, again, grounding for – this is a very contemporaneous issue. It's it's not something in the way, way past, which has surfaced in the politics of the leadership in in the state of Virginia. Governor Ralph Northam – He's a medical doctor, and when he was in medical school, apparently the school yearbook published a picture on his page. So it's his name. Those of you who have seen it have seen the page. It's it's a professional picture of him and then some kind of casual pictures, one of which includes a picture of a man in blackface and somebody dressed in a KKK hood. This surfaced on a first on a conservative website that – highlighted this, he at first admitted or claimed, you know, responsibility and apologized. And then a day, I guess, later said, but he doesn't actually think it was him in that picture. And there's this been the hand-wringing, lots of almost universal calls for him to resign office. So that's that's just, and he hasn't. Even as we're recording right now, he, he is still governor of Virginia. Again, the picture from the yearbook was around the same time that you would have had this elementary school pageant. Well, partly why I brought it up. Exactly, in the early 80s. So that's one thing. Early on, there was a lot of calls for him, as I mentioned, to resign, you know, and then the lieutenant governor would assume the governorship of Virginia or of the – and – the lieutenant governor is an African-American man by the name of, of Justin Fairfax. And so on the one hand, there was this kind of seeming poetic 
justice that, you know, there's this racist sort of overt act of the past with which Northrum is affiliated. He claims now that he is not in that picture, but he did admit that he did put on blackface in a Michael Jackson dance competition in Texas some years later. Just very bizarre that, you know, it's it's sort of like, I didn't rob that bank. I know because I would remember because I was too busy robbing this other bank. Yeah. You know? and, and so Justin Fairfax was in the news prior to this revelation about Governor Northam having stood against the uh, Robert E. Lee remembrances in the state legislature. And so leading up to this, it seemed like, oh, it's poetic justice because here's a man who has been standing against the racist past visibly who would then assume in the face of this person who engaged in the racist past without reflection or whatever. That was the poetic justice reading up to and until there were some other revelations about Justin Fairfax. Right. There have been one or I believe two at this point accusations, one pretty descriptive one, pretty clear one of uh, Justin Fairfax having sexually assaulted a woman who is now a university professor. It's, it's, a, it's really disturbingly deja vu when we think back to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and uh, Dr. Christina Blasey Ford. Again, these are these are accusations. There there hasn't been an investigation yet to corroborate this or to to identify its credibility. But this is not a small thing. It's a very important thing. As this second kind of scandal was surfacing about the lieutenant governor, the third in line to the governorship, the attorney general for the Commonwealth of Virginia, preemptively outs himself as somebody who also at some point, presumably in the 80s or late 70s, um, this is Attorney General Mark Herring, also engaged in blackface, you know, uh, darkening his skin to present as African-American in some context, a party or as a costume. It just gets crazy. So those are the three top Democratic uh, politicians in the state. But it doesn't end there. Let me just add this this last point, which is the fourth person to assume the uh, governorship should the top three, you know, resign or become incapable is the House Speaker of the Virginia House of Representatives. And this guy is named Kirk Cox. He preemptively also came out and said that he was a yearbook editor who oversaw the editing of a yearbook in which photos of white people in blackface also appeared. So he didn't identify himself as somebody who participated in this, but he has an affiliation with the same racist practice. He's got, just by way of tangent, just an interesting story. This whole thing is just such a circus because Representative Cox, he became Speaker of the House. He's a Republican, I should say. Became Speaker of the House because in the race for Speaker of the House of Representatives, there was a tie and it was contentious and they couldn't decide. And so they put the names of the top vote getters into a bowl and they pulled his name effectively out of a hat. So it's by pure happenstance that this guy, if the top three folks in line for the governorship should resign or, or be found incapable of governing, you know, this guy who's who became speaker by draw of the hat could become governor. This whole thing is crazy. David, what do we make of this? Well, so I, you say it's by happenstance. Isn't it odd that fourth person in line that they drew randomly out of a hat would also have been implicated in blackface? This is the wider point that I wanted to make from the beginning of the conversation. In the South structurally and in the North ideologically, we were committed to racism. And what we need to understand is that we will not find anyone, even people with the best intentions who were not associated with or in some way caught up with the blackface phenomenon. I literally have a yearbook from that year 
of, you know, at the back when they're talking about student events, this pageant was in the student events and they've got me in a top hat playing Governor Fob James sitting at the desk reading the the narration. And then they've got another picture of this student in WC Handy Blackface. You know, so I'm there literally on the same page as a student in blackface. It's not inconceivable that anyone who could be in the line of succession for the governorship of Virginia would be in some way tainted by this because it is the water that we're swimming in. This is the thing that we need to understand is that racism is something that we haven't dealt with. It's something that we haven't acknowledged. The deep hurt and the implication of every person who was a beneficiary, and I'm scare quoting that, of segregation, who benefited by, and I'm scare quoting that again, being pulled out of integration. And that's most of the students in the South who ended up going to find schools like the University of Virginia, the University of Georgia, Emory, the University of the South, my alma mater, literally the University of the South, that had a, up until just recently, on the main drag of University Avenue, it had a 12-foot high monument to General Kirby Smith, the last surrendering general of the Civil War. So, I mean, we have we have an entire culture that is based around this notion of segregation and the differentiation of the races. And so it's not surprising to me that anyone drawn out of the hat would have some kind of implication by this because it's everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too. I, there was a, a opinion writer, a columnist for The New York Times who a few days ago wrote a really striking uh, column about you know, the focus on blackface is is important as an overt instance of anti-black racism in the United States. But he makes the point, particularly as, as a person of color, that we should not be distracted too much by this, that thankfully, 30, 40 years later, this is something that is, is, is near universally recognized as 100% inappropriate. Yeah. And, and it would be an absolute scandal and, and horrible. I mean, it's horrible that it ever happened, but it would be just unmitigatedly a scandal today. His point is that can this also be used in addition to whatever needs to be done with regard to figuring out the leadership of the Commonwealth of Virginia and ne- negotiating this, this chaos, this goat rodeo of leadership? Can we use this as an opportunity to talk about what you were just saying, you know, the way in which structural racism implicates everybody and that those who benefit even unwittingly from it, which would be those who identify or are perceived as white and perform whiteness in society, that they are complicit. We are complicit in a structurally racist country and culture. And so, you know, I I heed that. I think that's really important moving forward. I think this is an opportunity for us to talk about you know, how is it that within your and my lifetime that this was a very common practice, so common that, like you said, you can pull a name out of the hat of this legislature and you're going to find somebody who is overtly implicated in this practice? Well, I mentioned 1981. Also important to remember is that 1981 is the date of the last lynching right. here in America. So, again, in my lifetime, in the recent memory of people who are alive today, is not just this casual practice of racism, but terroristic practices of racism. They are part and parcel parallel to one another. And so these moments give us not just a chance to reflect, but a chance to do penance, to speak, to name, to confess, to repent. So I'm also a graduate, you know, I did graduate work at Vanderbilt University, Vanderbilt University, Google Confederate Hall, uh, a hall that was donated to the university by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And Vanderbilt worked to rename that hall and the Daughters of, of the Confederacy sued Vanderbilt for breach of contract. There's a deep history of not just actions, but 
infrastructure that is based around this type of segregation and this history of wanting to keep the races separate. And the question that I, you know, this was beginning to blossom when I was graduating from Vanderbilt. And the question that was ringing in my mind is we don't want to just brush this under the carpet and pretend like this never happened and that Vanderbilt didn't take the money from the Daughters of the Confederacy to name this building and build this building in honor of, of a regime that was that was dedicated to segregation. That's a history that we can't just ignore. We need to name, we need to work through, we need to repent of. And that's an important piece of this as well. I think, you know, what you're naming there suggests to me something I've heard a lot of commentators talk about with regard to Northam, that instead of this quasi-admitting and then retracting and saying, that's not me, and kind of blundering this whole you thing. You want to see end. me moonwalk? Yeah. Right? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, geez. If You know, thank God for his wife. And, yeah. and you know, it's, well, we're getting, that's a tangent. <laughs> it, it, what David's referring to here is the press conference he gave the day after he seemingly admitted that he was in the photo and then retracted that and talked about this moonwalking competition, this Michael Jackson competition in Texas. The whole thing is, is un, literally unbelievable. But one of the things that I've heard a lot of people say and makes a lot of sense to me in the spirit of what you're just saying about Vanderbilt is had Northam handled this differently and used this as an opportunity to talk about what was uncritically and unreflectively acceptable at the time, which is now, you know, he could use this as an opportunity to talk about his own growth out of, you know, naive or even willfully ignorant complicity in structural racism and how that manifests itself in these very overt ways. This whole thing could have been handled very differently. I'm not sure that's still enough. I, I, I'm not sure. I feel very torn about all of this because um, to your point about the pulling the names out of the hats and this, the symbolism of that, which is, you know, I've also heard people point out this is not to justify the way it's been handled or what he has done or what any of these people associated with the, the blackface performativity have done. You know, the, the business with Fairfax and the sexual assault is another conversation altogether. But I don't know. I guess that's my question to you is like, should they resign? Does that mean everybody, you know, if, if you were running for the state legislature and this picture shows up and you're sitting there in this photo next to a photo of a kid in blackface, like, do you resign? I'm not trying to be apologetic. I'm not saying that it was justified. I'm just I feel very, on the one hand, very righteously angry about this and that this is still an issue that that by which I mean people are still doing this and and as recently as in my lifetime were unawares uh, seemingly uh, that that this was wrong and, and just terrible but I'm also I don't know I just you know what is the correct response part of me says everybody should, everybody should just resign but I don't know that that solves the problem well, I think one of the problems is, is that there's not one problem here. Right. So right. I think that in general, leadership at every level statewide and nationally would benefit from having people of color visibly in positions of leadership. And so less white guys, I'm just in favor of that. More women, more people I second who are that. visibly minority. That being said, those who are in positions of leadership should also be not having problems with domestic abuse or sexual assault 
And so that's a that's a separate problem. So the the answer is not just to put any person of color into leadership, but people of, again, our leaders should be people of character. I well, think that's good Catholic teaching. That's right. No, that's right. Recognizing that not everybody's perfect. That's not what you're saying, but no. good people of character. And part of that, and again, I, I, I'm always thinking back to the wisdom, the, the kind of prophetic wisdom of the young people before the Synod in 2018, where they say, we want mentors in our faith who are not afraid to acknowledge their humanity, to ask for forgiveness when necessary and to forgive us when we need it. And, and I think there's something to be said about that here. I'm, I'm reminded of, and I, 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 his name escapes me right now, but the young man who grew up in the household, his father was the founder of, of the Daily, is it the Daily Stormer or a caller, this, this racist um, neo-Nazi website. And then he had a radio show and so forth. And he's, he's been very vocal in recent years about his kind of conversion, we might say, even in a secular sense, about the reality of racism and the evils that he overtly participated in by growing up in this white nationalist community and, you know, uh, his godfather's David Duke and so on. But the power of him being able now to speak about the ills of racism and of white supremacy and, and, and the lies that are tied to that, there, there's something to be said, a kind of authenticity that comes. It doesn't excuse and he doesn't excuse all the harm that he's caused. In fact, in many ways, his public sharing of this a conversion experience, an ongoing conversion experience, um, his move from anti-Semitism to learning about you know the Jewish community from college classmates of his, inviting him to participate in Shabbat and so forth. I wonder if this is, again, a missed opportunity because it is different than sexual assault, domestic abuse, the kind of thing that Fairfax is being accused of right now. It is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. That's exactly right. But what I mean to say where it is different is what you're describing in terms of this kind of widespread social practice that was understood to be acceptable at a time. Well, now let me answer your question. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that Northam should resign, and I think that here's why. Yeah. So I was raised in a racist culture. I was raised by a racist. My mother was an avowed racial segregator. segregator. Yeah. And so I am aware that I have benefited from racism. I have benefited from structural racism and particular racism. I have engaged casually in acts of both structural and particular racism, sometimes inadvertently and sometimes with just malice aforethought. Okay. And, and that is both part of the culture that I was raised in. It's also something that I have been trying to own and name and repent of and work against and to try and educate myself about, and in particular, to shut my mouth and listen to people of color and to the suffering that I have helped to cause either inadvertently or by participating in something. And, And so, you know, those moments are moments when I've been trying to grow and repent and make amends. What I'm not seeing in Governor Northam is that notion of I, hey, I participated in this. It's a problem. We need to name it, and we and and I need to be listening to those that are both directly hurt and inadvertently hurt by the actions that I committed 30 years ago and the actions that I might commit now as governor. Lacking that kind of self-awareness, yeah, absolutely, he should step down. I think you're giving voice exactly to my feeling about this and, and why I think – you know, when we look at case by case, maybe the case with Attorney General Mark Herring is a little bit different as, as he put himself out there. Now, it 
was occasioned by the fact that he saw his superior being, you know, rightfully, you know, called to resign for not handling this well, not acknowledging it. And, and you know, that press conference we were laughing at a second ago is is case in point of how he just does not get it and he has no business being in that office. So in that regard, I agree with you, which is why I brought up that example of that kid who grew up in the, in the white nationalist, white supremacist context where – you know, somebody like him, I'd be more confident to be governor of the state where, you know, you can't undo what has been done in the past. But you this this kind of self-preservation that Northam seems to be, you know, perpetuating is is reinscribing the harm that that these overt racist acts, these particular racist acts have caused. It's why when I think about public service, I don't think about, oh, how can I become a how can I become a governor? How can I become a leader? How can I get involved in politics? It's rather, how can I use my white privilege as a way of supporting those people of color who are of good character that I find and to help to put them forward and to support them in, because I think, again, the visibility of this is important. We're not a white nation. We're a multicultural nation. We're not a nation of white men. We're a nation that is broadly and beautifully diverse. And that is not reflected in our leadership, and it's not reflected in the thinking of our leadership, and it needs to be. And so when it's 2019, it's unacceptable that a person who is the governor of a state would have the kind of thinking and reaction that Northam had. So if you don't understand structural racism, Google it. I mean, at the at this point, we need to move no, on. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. No, I'm going to not. Sorry, sorry. Okay, yeah, we'll just strike no, that entire no, thing. No, 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 yeah. no. We're not striking. Keep this in. Okay. I, I'm saying no to the Googling because not everything on the internet is right. Oh, good point. And so you, you Google structural racism, you end up on the Daily Stormer reading some white Nazi bullshit. Okay. What I'm saying, there are resources out there. You know, read the work of somebody like George Yancey, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi yeah, Coates. you can read. There are things. There are resources out there available. Go back. You know, we've listed a number of them. Read Brian Massengale. You know, if you're a listener who's Roman Catholic, you know, racial justice in the Catholic Church. Uh, read Sean Copeland's work. I mean, there there are people. Read uh, may he rest in peace, James Cone's work. You know, so I don't mean to jump down your throat, and and I want to leave in my my reaction because because I think it's easy for us, um, and, and I do want to encourage, like you were, our listeners to to look into this, but not all, not everything on the internet is good, and that's part of the problem. That's a point in. well taken, and yeah. I, so, I'm sorry, that the reflex of saying just Google it is is the kind of reaction to social media when when there are those who want to kind of sea lion their way into conversations and say, well, you need to explain this to me. No, you... Educate yourself. You can, you can take the time to educate <laughs> yeah. yourself. There are good resources. Michelle Alexander is another oh, yeah. great resource. New Jim Crow. New Jim Crow. Great book. So, you know, those are places where you can find and you can become educated. And most importantly, if you look around and you see faces that just look like yours, try and broaden and diversify your level of acquaintance and listen. Try not to be the expert in those conversations, but instead try and listen to the experience and the suffering of those who have been unjustly and unfairly marginalized by our culture. With with, with the caveat that it's not black people or persons of color's responsibility to educate white people, back to your point, just yeah. to emphasize your point about, you know, we need to educate ourselves. And as a kid in fifth grade in the 80s, uh, you know, one would think that as a medical student, an adult in the 80s, you know, uh, Northam should have known better. But it's evident, as you've rightly said, and I agree wholeheartedly, 
that in 2019, he's had 30 years to learn. Yeah. He's had 30 years to acknowledge this. And, and it's evident, case in point, was that nonsense at the press conference with him almost breaking out into a dance where his wife, the only adult apparently behind the podium, had to rein him in. He, he really does seem unfit for office. And um, as, as Catholic Christians who recognize, again, racial justice is a life issue. This is a moral issue. It's a civil issue. I feel confident and I, and I think we're on the same page about that. And, and it's an opportunity. I, I would echo again this opportunity for us to continue the conversation about why this persists, why this is a problem, um, and, and to help bring to light the, uh, the structural realities of an unjust society in which we live. Dan, as always, thanks for being here today, and we'll be back with you all in two weeks. Thanks for listening to The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on the program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our previous seasons. Thank you again for listening.